My brother took his life. He was 24 years old. I was 23 years old. I remember it like it was yesterday because it changed everything in the trajectory of my life and our, our family's life, of course. Years ago in Abbotsford, I was in another psychotic break and I ended up running naked in the area here doing all these weird sorts of things. And the cops came and got me and they're like, what's going on? And I couldn't speak to them. I just said, having trouble to verbalize. And they came and got me. And when I got into psych, the psychiatrist, he was like, this is an example of a happy psychotic, right? So psychosis, it can be a happy type of psychosis. That's how I present sometimes. So it's not always violent. It's not always scary. It's doing things that are embarrassing and hard to deal with. I've experienced a lot of different trauma caused by myself and caused by others too. But the times that I've done things to others in my psychotic state, I don't have a filter. The filter gets turned off and suddenly I'm doing whatever the voice commands me to do. I've hurt myself and I've hurt others. I had major jaw surgery in 2012 because of an accident of listening to the voices. It's a struggle because when I'm mentally unwell, those wouldn't be things that I would normally do if I'd been medicated and stable. I'm completely a different person in my psychotic state, completely different. While there's no way to predict whether a person with a mental illness will become violent, there's still a common understanding that those diagnosed with a serious mental illness like schizophrenia are unpredictably aggressive. It's no surprise we see mental illness, substance use, and violence connected in the news, on TV shows, and in movies. But unfortunately, this can create fear. And this fear can be a driving force for negative attitudes towards people living with a serious mental illness. Before we get into today's episode, here's a couple facts for us to think about. People who experience psychosis are five times more likely to be violent than the general population. But an individual experiencing psychosis is 33 times more likely to take their own life than another person's life. My name is Phaedra Aldridge, the host of Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined, a podcast about mental illness brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and other BC partner organizations. Today, we get to speak with Dr. Rakesh Lamba. Dr. Lamba is the medical director with BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services. He is also a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of British Columbia and has a ton of experience doing risk assessments with Correctional Services Canada and with the Parole Board of Canada. Dr. Lamba, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here and thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. So before we jump into the questions today, I just want to take a minute to hear some clips from people who have or are experiencing psychosis. Let's take a listen now. He did exhibit some violence that was quite scary. He took a sledgehammer through the TV and he did take some violence to my mom at the time. It was very, very difficult. But as I know and what I've learned, that was not him. That was the illness when he wasn't taking care of himself. I don't know if that was really her when she was that ill. And that's what I try to say. I try to think that she didn't know. Her brain was hijacked at the time. That's how it helps me get through, like knowing that my mom's brain was hijacked and that wasn't really her. When she did pull a knife on people and on the paramedics that time, 
So Dr. Lamba, what is psychosis? Psychosis is best understood as a break from reality. Essentially, the highly confused state of mind, which has an alternate reality or a misperception of the environment that they are in. As one can imagine, such experiences can generate strong emotions in a person, like fear, anger, agitation, and sometimes, unfortunately, aggression in responding to these experiences. An individual who is experiencing delusions and hallucinations believes in those experiences to be as real as you and me would consider normal experiences. They lose that insight, that ability to pause and think and consider the reality of these experiences. Dr. Lamba, we talked earlier about the association between mental illness and violence. How do you explain the relationship between psychosis and potential violence to your patients and the families that you work with? The, the association between psychosis, particularly as a symptom of mental illness and violence, appears to have two common beliefs. I think it's very important to have a very balanced and nuanced view of the relationship between psychosis and violence. As you can imagine, any exaggerated concerns of this violence are indeed stigmatizing and further marginalizing to a population that is very vulnerable. On the other hand, if you deny this relationship, that leads to missed opportunities to treat individuals, to provide them with the help and support that they need, and may then in some instances lead to violent incidents that only further stigmatize the group as a whole. That also has not been very clear in defining this relationship. Remote studies first said that there is a correlationship between psychosis, schizophrenia, and violence. Later studies were somewhat more equivocal, but more recent studies that use good methodology have in fact shown a consistent but modest relationship between schizophrenia and violence. Or the risk of individuals with psychosis perpetrating violence is a relative risk to the general population. But it's equally true that very few individuals who suffer from psychosis or schizophrenia actually commit violence. And when you look at the total burden of violence in society, only about 10% of the violence is accounted for by individuals who are psychotic. Another important aspect to consider about this relationship is that violence committed by individuals who suffer from psychosis occurs most commonly during acute stages of the illness when they are untreated. In fact, even when they are undiagnosed. So a substantial portion of patients with schizophrenia who commit acts of violence do so before they have presented for treatment. And it is not uncommon for it to come to light that a person suffers from schizophrenia only due to a serious violent incident. The most extreme example of this is if you consider all homicides perpetrated by individuals with schizophrenia, 40% of them were committed by patients in their first episode. They had not yet been diagnosed as suffering from the illness, and hence they were untreated. So based on what you said there, it sounds as though the key is the untreated mental illness. That seems to be the connection between psychosis and violence. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree with that. And those are important factors. 
There are some other general factors as well amongst individuals who suffer from schizophrenia that may help assess the occurrence of violence. But very important features are the untreated symptoms. Now, Dr. Lamba, is there any way to predict whether a person with schizophrenia or an individual experiencing psychosis will, in fact, become violent? The short answer is no. And to help understand that, you have to understand the difficulties in predicting violence in general. Firstly, if you consider the word predicting, predicting simply refers to that binary decision of yes or no. Will a person be violent or will a person not be violent? Violence itself is very uncommon, generally speaking. When you are trying to predict yes or no for an event that is uncommon, that becomes all the more difficult. And so that's no different for individuals who suffer from schizophrenia. The other thing to consider is that violence is a complex outcome. There are many factors that account for violence, many of which we don't understand. There are some factors that contribute to violence that we still don't know. And that is true for general population as well as individuals who suffer from schizophrenia. And so that's why it's very difficult to quote unquote predict violence in an individual who suffers from psychosis or schizophrenia. So Dr. Lambert, what are some signs that could indicate that a person living with schizophrenia may be at risk for violence? What helps us assess the risk to say that at this particular point, a person might be more likely, not necessarily will be, but just more likely to go on to be violent is a constellation of symptoms as a single factor person who has a history of violence is more likely to be violent in the future as a single standalone factor. That's the strongest factor. And that's true for individuals who do not suffer from any illness, as well as individuals who suffer from schizophrenia. So keeping that in mind, it's easier to assess the risk of violence in a person who we know has some predisposition to violence and has previously been violent, as opposed to somebody who has never been violent when we are just trying to predict out of the blue that whether or not this person is going to be violent. I think what's important to consider is a person who is, for example, in the throes of acute psychosis and experiencing delusions and hallucinations very acutely, a person who is under the influence of substances or in the middle of the run of use of drugs, particularly stimulant drugs, a person who has complete absence of insight, a person who has violent fantasies or ideas as part of their illness or delusions. Those factors will add up to a period of heightened risk to that assessment that this is a time period where the individual is at a heightened risk for violence. And Dr. Lamba, you talked about this earlier. It must be so incredibly awful for an individual experiencing psychosis because, as you said, they believe it. They are living it. So based on all your years of experience working with people experiencing psychosis and their families, what do you hear from them about what it's like to live with psychosis? So that reaction to an incident that a person has perpetrated in the midst of a psychotic state varies. They look back at how they behaved in that particular incident, and they are absolutely overcome with remorse, shame, guilt, all of those feelings. And then there are other individuals who unfortunately have ongoing persistent psychosis 
where they are in a mental state where briefly, if at all, they can actually reflect on their behaviors in their past. So the severity of the illness and the course of the illness varies. But certainly I've seen many patients who later on in periods of remission, quite horrified about their own behavior committed while they were psychotic. You're listening to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined, a podcast brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and BC Partner Organizations. I'm your host, Phaedra Aldridge. This podcast would not be possible without the support of the community. From the bottom of our hearts, we want to thank you for caring about serious mental illness and everything that's around it. Together, we truly can make a difference. Welcome back to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined. We're back with forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Rakesh Lamba. Okay, Dr. Lamba, based on your work with the Correctional Services Canada and Forensic Psychiatric Services, I'm curious about what typically happens to a person with a serious mental illness like schizophrenia if they are arrested for committing a crime. So when a person is detained, they go to a remand center or a jail and they are held in custody. What happens in British Columbia in the provincial correctional system is that all individuals undergo a physical and mental health screening within 24 hours of being detained and within 24 hours of admission to a correctional center. The mental health screening includes things like screening for the presence of symptoms of mental illness, including psychotic symptoms like delusions, hallucinations, presence of mood disorders, symptoms like depression, mania, suicidal ideas, intent, or planning for suicide. Screening is also very important for substance use. So they will screen for whether or not a person appears to be under the influence of substances having come recently off the street or whether they are suffering from withdrawal symptoms. The screening process is actually quite detailed upon admission to the correctional centers. And it tries to achieve two things. The first thing is, does this person need any kind of special observation or special placement within the facility. The second thing that it determines is what sorts of services this person needs to be referred to. Do they need to see a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a general practitioner right away? There's also a process of what we refer to as medication reconciliation. They try to obtain a bit of a medication history for the person so that there is no break and there is continuity in giving individuals their medications for whatever conditions that they had been taking medications out in the community. Once they are detained, depending on how they present, and as they go through their court process, the courts have an ability to refer these individuals for assessment for fitness to stand trial. So the court or the lawyers involved with the patient can become interested to know whether this person is fit to stand trial, which essentially means do they understand the nature of the charges against them? Do they understand the consequences of a guilty finding or a guilty plea? Are they able to enter plea or answer to those charges? Are they able to participate meaningfully in the court process? So that's all under the assessment of fitness to stand trial. How long does that process typically take, Dr. Lamba? So that's a good question. It can take some time. At the first appearance or in subsequent appearances in court, when such a concern may arise, the court may order such an assessment to be done either in custody or out of custody. There is a bit of a wait for these individuals to be admitted to the forensic psychiatric hospital where these assessments are conducted. 
in custody. Overall, the courts have the ability to order these assessments for 30 days with one extension of another 30 days. So there is some wait for admission to the forensic psychiatric hospital. Once they get to the hospital, depending on their condition and depending on whether or not they need treatment for any acute symptoms that are present, it can take some time. The other consideration that may come up during the court process is the court may become concerned about what the mental state of this person was when they committed the act that led to the charges. And that assessment is referred to as criminal responsibility or whether a finding of NCRMD, not criminally responsible due to mental disorder, is warranted in this case. And those assessments also, when ordered in custody, take place at the forensic psychiatric hospital. Now, going through this process and the assessments, we have talked a lot about the impact on family. And I don't think the impact on families can be emphasized enough. So what options do families have to keep their loved one protected and ensure that they get the proper support while they're going through these assessments? So unfortunately, there is not much that families are able to do while the person is going through the assessments. The forensic psychiatric hospital is not like your regular hospital. There are things like visitation, but because these individuals are considered to be in their custodial phase or the remand phase, there are special rules that apply around visitation. I'm sure that families feel a bit disconnected at this stage of the process. The patients, of course, can contact their families by phone and be in touch with their lawyer, their families, their friends, whether they are at the correctional center or at the forensic psychiatric hospital. But unfortunately, that seems to be the extent of the direct support and contact at that stage. And while it's difficult to say a lot about what the families can do while the loved ones are going through assessment, I think in general, the families have a big role to play in their journey by emotionally supporting their loved ones, by encouraging them, monitoring their mental state, monitoring their compliance to medications, watching for signs of acute relapse, helping them through difficult phases of their lives, helping them deal with stressors, because we know that stress is an important precipitant of an acute episode. So just that kind of support, helping their loved ones abstain from drugs and alcohol, helping them access treatment, and then, of course, advocacy within the system to help support their loved ones. And Dr. Lamba, I know this is a big question, but I'm curious. What changes would you, as a forensic psychiatrist, like to see within the criminal justice system in terms of how people with a mental illness are viewed and treated? That is a big question. I mean, we speak about the criminalization of the mentally ill. That's essentially what's happened over the last two or three decades with the deinstitutionalization movement. When the big psychiatric institutions closed down, and no services or resources were added to address the needs of the ill population. What we saw is a few negative outcomes, and the biggest one of them was the criminalization of the mentally ill. Jails and forensic psychiatric facilities became the default mental institutions. That's been the unfortunate experience, of course, over the last couple of decades, criminalization of the mentally ill. The reversal of this process will take some time, obviously, and a lot of coordinated effort and resources 
it will take to reverse the trend. Thank you. And I have one final question, Dr. Lamba. And as we said earlier, we know through media that there is that feeling of fear when it comes to the connection between people experiencing psychosis and violence and the widespread public perception that everyone who has schizophrenia is going to be violent. How do we address that? And how do we combat that automatic connection that seems to be in our society today? That's a difficult one, how to combat this widespread perception. I think everybody has a role in it. The mental health professional's role is to keep highlighting at every available opportunity that this relationship is not automatic, keeping in mind that while there is a correlation as a group, individuals with schizophrenia may be at more risk for violence as compared to the general population, only few of the individuals who suffer from schizophrenia are actually violent. And looking at the broader picture, when you look at all of the violence, the load of the burden of violence in society, only a small amount of that is accounted for by individuals who suffer from schizophrenia. And I think that puts it best in perspective. Yeah, I think it's important to emphasize that there's not an automatic connection between violence and somebody experiencing psychosis. But we also have to be very real and very cognizant of the fact that there is a connection and people who are untreated can be violent. And that's why I am so happy we are having this conversation today, Dr. Lamba. I would agree, thank you. And a huge thank you to you, our audience, for joining us for this episode. Together, we can change the narrative around mental illnesses like schizophrenia and put an end to the many myths and stereotypes that we were talking about today. If you have any questions or comments, tweet us at BC Schizophrenia. And to get our latest episode, be sure to hit follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. We hope you can join us next episode. Talk to you soon. This podcast is brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and the BC Partners for Mental Health and Substance Use Information. We're a group of nonprofit agencies providing good quality information to help individuals and families maintain or improve their mental well being. The BC Partners members are Anxiety Canada, BC Schizophrenia Society, Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, Canadian Mental Health Association's BC Division, Family Smart, Jesse's Legacy, the North Shore Family Services Program, and Mood Disorders Association of BC, a branch of Lookout Housing and Health Society. The BC Partners are funded and stewarded by BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services, an agency of the Provincial Health Services Authority. For more information, visit heretohelp.bc.ca.